Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a Senior Fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the world's newest and biggest mega regional trade deal, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP. On balance, a slightly better name than the USMCA, but but still really not great. The RCEP has 15 members. 10 of them are already members of ASEAN. That's a trade block of Asian countries. And they're the ones who really started this thing way back when. But it's also going to include Japan, New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, and China. At one point, India was on that list, but they're not involved anymore. We'll get to that. We will. We asked my colleague at the Peterson Institute, Arvin Subramanian, about that. But we're also going to hear from Deborah Elms, who's the executive director of the Asian Trade Center in Singapore. Deborah's been digging into the weeds of this agreement. Deborah, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for being here. This deal has been negotiated for a while. Have you been following it right since the beginning? Well, it it was officially launched in late 2012, uh, and the talks for most of 2013 were not very productive. They were more about setting the stage. So starting in 2014, the talks got a bit more serious, and we began going to the talks in 2014. And over the course of the RCEP negotiations, I personally was at or in 17 of those rounds. So I've been at this for quite a long time. 17 rounds. Well, the the agreement as a whole ended up with, it it depends on your counting, but I have 29 rounds of official negotiations plus multiple what they called intercessionals, which were less formal inter between round discussions. I think the ministers themselves met something like 11 times, and even the leaders have met four times for not just a conversation around tea, but like hardcore negotiations. So this has been an intense experience getting this agreement from thought to reality uh, across the last eight years. Wow. Okay. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears there. RCEP is the deal where every so often it would pop up. Someone would say, "Ah, oh, we're about to we're about to agree it." And and at the beginning, I was I was hopeful, and then by the end, I was kind of you know this very crusty old um, skeptic saying, "Ah, oh, that's what they always say. It never happens." Um, you know, cynic Samaya. And and now that they they have agreed it, there are a few hot takes that I feel are the sort of standard ones. So let's just get those out of the way really quickly. Um, the first one is that this is a really big agreement. The countries involved account for a lot of global GDP. Uh, the other one is that it's relatively shallow. So I think it's something like 90% of tariff lines are, are done away with as part of the deal over a 20-year period. That's not that many tariff lines compared to some other trade deals that, that we you know, would normally think of as liberalizing all trade. It's not as ambitious as the CPTPP, the success of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a uh, America-led version with a bunch of the same members that are ultimately in RCEP. And also that that it's 
that it's tidying up a lot of older trade deals, right? So this is really a consolidation of trade arrangements that are already in place between these members. And I actually spent my afternoon trying to calculate, if, if we look at all the trade flows going between the different members, what share of those trade flows are between members that already actually have a trade agreement? And I, I calculated it was 83% uh, of trade flows. So... From your perspective, when you think about this deal, what are the big gains, right? Which which countries are being brought in? Which new relationships are being formed here that, that aren't there now? So if I start with that question, the obvious answer is we had no agreement in place between some very important players. And in particular, we had no agreement between Japan and South Korea. We had no agreement between Japan and China. And those are some critical relationships on trade, especially, that have always been difficult to lock down and that are now done through RCEP. So the first sort of new member access at the, the, the most basic level are those relationships. But I think it goes beyond that. And while it's true that we have a lot of agreements in Asia, RCEP itself was built to try to consolidate, as you mentioned, the existing five ASEAN plus one agreements with its so-called dialogue partners. But I think the net result is much more than just consolidating the existing agreements. It goes far beyond any existing ASEAN plus one agreement. And it combines them in ways that are extremely helpful for firms and likely to prove a bit revolutionary as we go forward. So ASEAN plus one is those 10 ASEAN countries with one additional one. So they have free trade agreements already individually with Japan, with South Korea, with China, with Australia, with New Zealand. Okay, so that's definitional. What are these things actually going to do in terms of deeper integration? So one of the challenges that firms have had in using these existing ASEAN plus one agreement is that the rules vary. So if you manufacture a product, let's take something simple like a table, you want to ship a table from somewhere in ASEAN to South Korea, you need to accumulate or add up content from across the 10 ASEAN countries plus South Korean content to meet the thresholds to be able to use the agreement into South Korea. Okay, that, that's manageable. It's not always easy, but it's manageable. But the difficulty is if I want to ship the same table into, let's say, Japan or Australia, New Zealand, I may have to reformulate the way I make this table. I may have to switch out who makes the legs or where I get the steel or where the wood comes from in order for me to qualify for these other agreements. Because if I'm counting Korean content for my table, that will not work when I ship it into Japan or Australia. So what RCEP does is it helps consolidate those rules of origin so that I manufacture the table to RCEP criteria. And RCEP criteria then means that my table that qualifies, the legs, the wood, the top, the steel, the whatever is in my table, as soon as I hit RCEP criteria, I can now ship the table without change into all 15 economies. That is a massive shift for firms and allows you to do things that you couldn't do before. And in particular, what it does is it makes it much easier for you to send goods around the 15 economies in Asia accompanied by, and this is also crucial, one piece of paper. So instead of having to have five separate, actually six, because you need an ASEAN one too, six separate 
certificates of origin, each one of which is slightly different. Each one has different requirements attached to it. There is now one certificate of origin that accompanies every table or every carpet, coffee cup, television set, whatever you want to send in and around Asia. So that right there should help unleash new opportunities for firms in the region to, to think of Asia as the market rather than Korea or Indonesia or Australia. So just to push you a little bit more on that, and so, you know, Trade Talks listeners will have heard us talk a lot about rules of origin in the context, especially of the, the USMCA, the renegotiation of the NAFTA agreement in North America. And one of the big outcomes of that negotiation was increasing the amount of content in North America required for automobiles for in order to be eligible for for you know these tariff preferences under the agreement. And the result of this was to sort of encourage internal trade within North America but hurt trade with the rest of the world. So what's your sense for how this is going to shake out uh, in 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 the RCEP region then? Is it going to be sort of trade liberalizing or is this a sort of building up of walls toward the rest of the world? Well, first, I would say that the NAFTA rules of origin, particularly on autos, are a nightmare and should never be replicated anywhere else. But in the context of RCEP, and let me just caveat this by saying that I have not studied them at length across all of the you know, chapters included in RCEP. They are product-specific rules of origin. You'd have to look at them very carefully in each one and then each category and then each sector and try to imagine what they actually do for different kinds of goods. But overall, I would say that RCEP's rules of origin are two, three kinds, really. We have product-specific rules of origin that are uh, RVC, regional value content, and the RVC threshold is surprisingly good. It's at 40%. So 40% of the content needs to come from the 15 economies in the region in order to qualify for RCEP preferences. That is I think surprisingly low, considering how much content can be drawn from 15 markets. It's, it's always hard to hit thresholds when you have small agreements because there's just not enough content, raw materials, parts, and components. But when you look at, at the Asia and you say, wow, I can accumulate across all of Asia, a 40% threshold is very liberal, I would say. So that's one of the rules. The RCEP also uses change in tariff heading rules, Sorry, can I just jump in so we can explain a uh, change in tariff headings? So, th- so am I right in thinking that essentially the rule is that as long as you have transformed the product in such a way that it changes tariff heading, so it changes between a different product type, um, then that that's transformed enough within the region to be able to, to count under the deal and, and, and use the tariff preferences. Exactly. So I think that change in tariff heading is easiest to imagine if we think about creating a product like jams or jellies. So you had fruit and then you have squished it and maybe added some sugar or something to it. And now you have jams and jellies. Usually that's a change in tariff heading from the original fruit, whatever it was, citrus fruit or, you know, plums or fill in the blank what, to the jam itself. And so change in tariff heading is helping firms use this agreement to transform those products by using the change in tariff heading rather than value content. And the reason that you want change in tariff heading 
overvalue content sometimes is a couple of things. One, you don't have to worry about things like exchange rate fluctuations because it doesn't matter what the exchange rate is. If it was fruit and now it's jelly, it doesn't matter what happens to your exchange rate. It also helps because we don't have to think about necessarily labor content. We don't have to think as much about sourcing of those fruits. As long as we had a fruit and it became a jelly and we did it in RCEP, we can qualify for RCEP preferences. So some firms find that change in tariff heading is easier to meet. And if you look at RCEP, you will see that some of the rules are one or the other. So you get to pick which of these two rules, RVC or change in tariff heading, meets your firm's practices the best. So the, the point of this is to say that the officials themselves recognize the importance of rules of origin, worked extremely hard. This, this was one of the most difficult chapters to conclude, but they worked very hard to make it as easy as possible for firms to use the agreement in as many areas as they could. So then the third one, just to, to, to finish the, the story here, the third rule of origin that's included are process rules. Process rules, mostly for chemicals and petrochemicals, plastics, et cetera, is very important because as, as I sit here in Singapore, Singapore imports oil and then transforms it into lots of different kinds of chemicals and petrochemicals. If you don't have process rules in place, it can be difficult to meet RVC rules because it depends on the price of barrel of oil and it depends on how much value gets added, and it's just complicated to do. So process rules say, as long as it is physically done in RCEP jurisdiction, the process itself, the cracking, those whatever they do with, I don't actually even know what they do with chemicals, but whatever it is that they do to chemicals to make them chemicals, as long as you do it in RCEP for RCEP markets, you qualify. And so I think having three different approaches to rules of origin and having flexibility in some areas to choose between them helps RCEP firms do more business in Asia for Asia. Okay, so these rules of origin seem relatively loose, relatively generous, and, and they've clearly made an effort in making them simpler to use. Are there any caveats to that? Um, are there any ways in which these are going to be difficult to use? RCEP has this one set of rules of origin that is helpful. The tariff schedules that you're qualifying for in RCEP are an unholy mess. They are thousands and thousands of pages. The Korean schedule alone is 2,742 pages of tariff concessions. In order for you to figure out in year seven from this market to that market, what is the tariff rate for my product, it requires almost a PhD in unraveling tariff schedules. So on the one hand, RCEP was extremely helpful in creating this one rule of origin, fantastic, one certificate of origin, awesome. On the other hand, they have been extra difficult in getting the tariff schedules in place so that firms can figure out, well, what are the benefits on offer from going through this painful exercise of manufacturing to RCEP specifications? So maybe let's let's turn to some of the other chapters. Um, as, as you sort of glance through them at this stage and it's still early. You haven't had time to fully digest them. Is there anything that, that jumped out and, and surprised you? Services. I think services is very impressive, uh, in part because these economies are, of course, structurally set up to export goods. They've been doing that for a very long time. Many of them are export powerhouses in one way or another in their own rights. But services is an area that traditionally has been less explored, less examined. We haven't done as much work in, even in the ASEAN plus one underlying agreements at covering services trade. 
And yet, if you look at the RCEP commitments, many of them made quite remarkable commitments to one another to open up services. So I think that's quite interesting. And investment is another area that I thought went beyond what I had imagined. I knew that all of the members were ambitious on inbound investment. And so they they created a fairly liberal approach to inbound investment, including rules that support that. So I think services and investment overall, surprising. And so just just to be clear, the coverage of the services provisions is better uh, than I think many people expected, though it, though it is still pretty patchy. And on investment, the kinds of things that are in there, there are rules that say that you can't limit the, say, the, the number of branches that a foreign company has, uh, its size, maybe maybe who's employed there. And those things are pretty important in Asia, okay? So one of the most contentious, um, I think, areas of investment in, in recent trade agreements has been ISDS or, or investor state dispute settlement, enforcing uh, some of the rules on investment. W- what do we know about that in, in RCEP? There is nothing called ISDS in RCEP. There was a lot of effort spent by the investment teams crafting a very comprehensive ISDS regime. But at the end, as we got close to the end of eight years of negotiation, New Zealand in particular brought in a new government that pledged that they would never sign another agreement under their watch that had ISDS in it. This created a major problem actually for RCEP because the original leader statement said that there would be ISDS in the final text. So how then are you going to solve this particular problem? RCEP does not have or did not use some of the mechanisms that other agreements have used. As an example, New Zealand got itself carved out of ISDS in the CPTPP agreement by using side letters with the other members to say ISDS provisions are in the text, but we in New Zealand and our whoever signs the other side of this side letter will not apply ISDS to investments between us. Side letters used in CPTPP were not part of RCEP and are not part of RCEP, at least at this point. Maybe someday in the future they'll come back again, but for now, no. So how do we solve this particular challenge? If you look at the final agreement in RCEP, it does two things around investment protection that I think is a bit different. So first, they have a special annex on expropriation, which is really the core of ISDS, is when the government expropriates or seizes your assets without fair compensation. So what what RCEP ended up doing is including more rules and more clarity around the appropriate expropriation rules for governments to follow and has an inbuilt commitment in the agreement to discuss a mechanism for resolving expropriation claims that is supposed to launch within two years of entry into force to be resolved one way or the other within three years of those negotiations starting. So what they basically tried to do was say, we haven't got the mechanism in place to replace ISDS, but we will start the negotiations around that within two years. And we promise that within five years, we will have something ready. So I think this is a way that a pragmatic approach to resolving the issue of what do we do about investor protection at a time when ISDS itself is contested. 
So comparing uh, RCEP to CPTPP, one of the one of the innovations of the CPTPP agreement was its chapter on, uh, or its chapters on on competition and state-owned enterprises. What do we see in in RCEP on on those issues? Well, there is a chapter on competition policy. There is no chapter on state-owned enterprises. This I don't think should surprise anyone, frankly, because almost or probably every economy in Asia has what are called state-owned enterprises, government-linked companies. Choose your acronym for what we call these things. But government is has always been deeply embedded in the economies across Asia. And COVID has made this even more likely that we will have government involvement in various companies around the region. So to the idea that somehow RCEP would create a chapter with state-owned enterprise rules was really far-fetched from the beginning, never going to happen, and didn't happen. The competition policy chapter is an important one in that we have very weak competition rules in many of the markets in this part of the world. And in particular, we miss things like, you know, we don't have offline consumer protection rules, as an example. So then you don't also have online consumer protection rules either. We don't have competition policy authorities looking at monopolies in some areas. Now, this gets politically very sensitive because if you say in Asia, who would you be cracking down on for monopoly power? In many cases, it would be the very same individuals and firms that prop up governments in different markets in the region. So it is no surprise, I think, that the competition rules in RCEP are not ambitious because it would be politically difficult for many of the members to actually agree to ambitious competition, anti-monopoly, antitrust kinds of policies across a very diverse set of 15 economies. Are there any other chapters that you thought were were notable for, for whatever reason? I don't think it's a chapter, but I think really interesting and notable is the commitment by RCEP to create a secretariat. The, the benefits of RCEP are twofold. One is what's in the agreement itself and the ability of that agreement to live on and to be upgraded over the future like other ASEAN agreements. But the second crucial part of RCEP to me is something that was not on the agenda early but has become increasingly important, which is it is set up to be a platform for discussing trade and economic issues in Asia for the future. So if you say, well, part of this platform includes now a secretariat, That is extremely important because it means that we have officials, we have ministers, we have leaders who will regularly be engaging on the RCEP agenda now into the foreseeable future. And that means that RCEP can start to create rules for trade in Asia and then beyond. So let me just give you a simple example of where I see this playing out. We currently have no rules in place, as far as I'm aware anywhere, on things like 3D printing. You know, things like who owns the designs for 3D printing? How are we going to handle the materials for 3D printing? What are allowable public exceptions for health reasons or safety reasons? You know, 3D printing weapons, etc. We don't have rules around that. I can imagine that RCEP economies could seize the opportunity to use RCEP as a platform for discussion about what are appropriate 3D printing rules for the future. And then once those rules get discussed and implemented in RCEP, they could become global rules on these areas as well. Because up until now, we've had Asia 
very fragmented. ASEAN can create rules in the 10 countries of, of ASEAN, but we haven't had an ability to add in the Japanese, the Chinese, the Koreans, the Australians, the New Zealanders to discuss what are appropriate rules around things like 3D printing, blockchain, artificial intelligence. I mean, fill in whatever categories you want. But I could imagine that RCEP could become a default platform for many of these conversations going forward. And that is a very big deal. Deborah, my last question would be, despite the fact that there have been prior free trade agreements between countries in this region, they have been frequently using WTO dispute settlement when they have trade frictions with each other. Right now at the WTO, obviously we have problems with the the dispute settlement system, the breakdown of the appellate body, who knows what the future you know lies in there. Is this new RCEP agreement, does it have a, a built out, fully fleshed out dispute settlement process to, to handle trade frictions between countries that are inevitable to arise? It does have a, a, a fairly robust, I would say, dispute settlement chapter. Uh, and the officials who worked on that, I will say, are phenomenal caliber in general. I mean, having met them over the years, really dedicated, worked extremely hard to create a dispute settlement chapter that is probably far more ambitious than people might have imagined for this region. The question, of course, is whether or not it will get used. So we have dispute settlement chapters in every FTA, as far as I know, uh, in the region, but they never get used. They never get used. We, we just don't have disputes between Asian markets that use Asian agreements to solve them. They usually, as you know, go to the WTO when they have a particular issue. So we have little track record of Asian markets using Asian FTAs for disputes, but we have an extensive track record of Asian markets going to the WTO to solve these disputes. We have two challenges now. Not only is the WTO dispute system not functioning, but increasingly rules in an RCEP are not also covered under WTO. So where would you dispute some of these things if you didn't use RCEP? So I think it's an open question how many disputes we might find in RCEP. I suspect it will be more than zero, but it will not be like a, an endless proliferation of disputes given the past track record of Asian markets and their caution around using the trade dispute settlement mechanisms in trade agreements. Last question. If you were a betting woman and someone forced you to make a wager, how soon would you bet that RCEP will come into force? I think it'll be January 1st of 2022. And I think there is reasonable confidence that we will get there. We need six out of the 10 ASEAN members and three out of the five dialogue partners to agree that they are ready to begin the agreement. And then 60 days later, it will take effect. And so I think they will be targeting January 1st of 2022. And for most of the economies in RCEP, the domestic procedures, the ratifications, et cetera, are either simple or short. So I think it's very likely that you will get six out of 10 ASEANs, probably three out of the five uh, dialogue partners in pretty short order. Next, we turn to my Peterson Institute colleague, Arvind Subramanian, who is the former chief economic advisor to the, to the government of India. And we asked Arvind why India left the RCEP negotiations. My own sense is that I think Two things played a key role. 
One was, you know, the broader turn inward that's been happening since about 2017-18, the sense that India needed to, you know, focus on its domestic market uh, and that, you know, in any case, exports had not been doing very well. So the sense, and of course, the, the world was deglobalizing. So the broader kind of ideological turn inward uh, made India, you know, less open to RCEP. A second, I think there had been a lot of talk about what the other Asian FTAs had done for India. And kind of there was a sense that maybe India, it didn't benefit, these agreements didn't benefit India as much as they ought to have. And But of course, I think the most important reason for India kind of pulling out probably was, you know, the China factor. Uh, there was a sense that RCEP would mean integrating with China. And I don't think India felt confident enough to be able to compete with China, especially if, uh, like other countries, India had the sense that, you know, you couldn't really control Chinese exchange rate policies, subsidy practices. So it would be an unfair level playing field. And, and so it would be difficult for India to, uh, to compete. Do you think there's a risk that India is going to get shut out of, of supply chains as a, as a result of not joining RCEP? I think there is a risk. Uh, but of course, the question is not whether India is going to get shut out. But India was never really been part of these supply chains, except for a few products. So it's more a, a sense of, you know, has India foregone opportunities to finally uh, re-engage with these uh, supply chains? I, I think that Perhaps as important, maybe as integrating with other countries via free trade agreements, I think India's own national trade policies have to become much more open. You know, India over the last four or five years has, in fact, almost repudiated 30 years of, you know, steady opening and has reversed a lot of trade policy. So a precondition for becoming part of the supply chains would be for domestic policy itself to become more open. That in turn can, I think, be the basis for India integrating with these other economies, including perhaps at some future stage in RCEP as well. We asked Debbie how quickly she thought India would be rejoining I think India will be a long time in coming. They pulled out last year for domestic reasons. Those domestic calculations, I think, have not changed and are unlikely to change, in my view, especially while the Modi administration remains in power. So I think it's a very long time, if ever. But there is an accession process. Uh, how quickly do you think the United States will, will, will exceed? And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Deborah Elms of the Asian Trade Center and Arvind Subramanian of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And I'm at Samaya Keynes. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. So it's hard to believe, but we have finally done the RCEP episode. So if that's RCEP, though, what's the next trade deal? There are, there are no more. It's it's done. <laughs> RCEP, RCEP was it. We're out. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs>